So when I go away on a holiday, uh, I usually end up watching some sort of show about about people buying homes that that need uh, a lot of work and then renovating them into into something really nice. Uh, so they don't buy the the ready to go house; they they buy uh, something that they can put uh, some effort into and make it their dream home. Uh, yeah. Now, whether it's for real or just a, a way for them to force some sort of plot into a show about fixing a house, uh, oftentimes they, they unexpectedly find so, some sort of significant damage hidden in a wall or, or in, a, in some sort of tucked away pipe or, or something like that. And this development, shocking development, right, always means that they have to redirect efforts and, and part of the budget away from something that they had intended for renovation into fixing what would be disastrous damage unless repaired. Now, in the book of Jude, right, the author tells us that he intended to write a general letter of encouragement about our common salvation. But he found himself sidetracked when he discovered that new members were working to undermine the doctrinal foundations of faith. So Jude wrote in verse 3, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, in contrast, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Jude had one plan, he was, he was going to uh, turn this church into the dream home, right? And found actually there was more significant damage than he thought. Now, these, these revisions to the faith were aimed, as clearly stated here, to permit immoral behavior. We'll change our doctrine so that we can do what we want to do. And so they would indeed eat away at the foundations of the Christian life. Just like the discovery of the pipe that would eventually erode the, the stability of the home's foundation. So Jude had discovered a stream of ungodliness that would undermine the theology and practice of the Christian faith itself, the foundations. And so Jude addressed these problems. They were no trivial matters since Jude felt it necessary to exhort his readers to contend for the faith. Indeed, he finishes this letter by affirming that that Christ is able to, to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless. We'll see that this letter opens about being kept and finishes with Christ keeping us. Clearly, then, perseverance is a central concern here. And the faith itself and the security of the church is at stake. Now, right, we're starting a series on Jude, and so we should take a few moments before we come to the specifics of the verses uh, on which we're focusing to get some, some background, some general introduction to this letter. So first, right, who is the author? Uh, Jude was a common name in the first century. 
Uh, and several Judes are, are mentioned in, in the New Testament. This Jude, he tells us, is James's brother. So James was the, the prominent leader of, of the Jerusalem church, the moderator of the Jerusalem council in Acts 15, the first general assembly, if you will, and the author of the epistle of James. So James, we know, was related to Jesus. And so this Jude was also Jesus's half brother. He's been Matthew thirteen fifty five, Mark six three. It seems to be the same Jude. So Jude is part of Jesus's family, uh, his half brother through Mary's Mary's lineage, uh, of course. Uh, that tells us who the author is. To whom was this letter sent then? Now we don't have uh, a specific destination mentioned in the text, uh, so. We have to infer who the recipients were. Now, most likely this letter was was meant for Christians in Palestine. Um, So familiarity with Judaism and Old Testament teachings. But it may also seemingly have had a a circular purpose to, to be distributed to other churches as well. The main theme, though, is that the issue of corrupting doctrine that was, that was being used to support immorality. Right? So antinomianism, being against the law, had infected the church. And Jude is attacking this corruption of doctrine that's being used to support corruption of morals. Now, it's not tied to this letter's composition, but, but I think it's important because this is something that uh, is floating about more and more, uh, is that it seems that the Apostle Peter relied on the book of Jude when composing Second Peter, uh, which is why, right, if, if, if you're a, a bookish kind of person, that's why commentaries on Jude and and Second Peter, at least Second Peter, not First Peter as well, are so often bound together um, because they have such significant overlap. Uh, it shouldn't surprise us or unsettle us, though, uh, despite what we're often told, that inspired authors used other biblical books to compose uh, what they were writing. The Gospels, at least Matthew, Mark, and and Luke, show significant overlap in content. Whichever one you you think was written first, it does seem that uh, some of them, two of them relied on the other to some degree or other. Uh, Paul obviously, obviously reused material from Colossians when writing the book of Ephesians and seemingly quoted Luke's Gospel as Scripture in 1 Timothy 5, 17 and 18. So, right, it's, it's useful for you to know about Peter's reliance on Jude, though, because that is for some reason thought to undermine the validity of both books as scripture. I don't know why I've yet to understand that claim fully, but it's made in popular discussions of trying to undermine the Bible. Since, though, we see that other New Testament authors find that practice of 
drawing on other biblical books, completely acceptable, we should not think it even an odd thing, much less a reason to doubt the inspiration of, of both of these letters, Second Peter and the book of Jude. But as we turn to Jude 1 to 4, we see that concern about doctrine that leads to immorality already emerge even within this salutation, this greeting and introduction. So the main point that we're going to consider today is that the whole church must be committed to sound doctrine if we are to live the way that befits those who belong to Christ. The whole church must be committed to sound doctrine if we are to live the way that befits those who belong to Christ. We're going to think about it in three points, and all of them uh, center around this contrast between the called and the ungodly. So various aspects of this contrast. So the first is the contrast, then the character of the contrast, and then the commission in the contrast. So first... The contrast. Uh, so, so these four verses uh, center around a very point is the major reason for this letter in general. And this contrast is described and the ungodly, verse 3. And this point, this first point here, just opens up and demonstrates that contrast. And so, so Jude addressed, right? We, we see it. There in the text, verse 1, those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. Now, the main description here, so, so right, what we want to do is get a handle on this description. And this main description of the recipients, then, is that they are called. That's the, the overarching category for them. But there are two accompanying descriptions as well. And so the people who are called are also beloved and kept. That Those two things further explain what it is to be a called person. Now in this case, beloved and kept explains who the called are. In the New Testament, the idea of calling is typically that of God's effectual call to faith. God summons faith into being in unbelievers through the preaching of the gospel, whether in the moment that it's preached or later in its effect, just as, as Paul would tell us in 2 Corinthians, as he, as God first summoned light into existence by the power of his word. And Jude confirms that notion because those who are called it's not, it's not just an invitation because the people who are called are loved and are kept for Jesus. So the ESV there uh, translate. if you have the text in front of you, uh, translates this as beloved in God the Father, but I think really it should be beloved by God the Father. So to be called is to be loved by God. 
calling, then what, what we need to see here, right? If you, especially if you are a believer, right, when you came to faith, what you need to know and remember is that that calling originated in God's love for you. Now, nevertheless, some may think that this is not all that specific if they do not understand the, the power of God's electing love. It may seem like calling and being loved by God is, is just an invitation and that God then loves everyone. Uh, and so Jude adds a second description that those who are called and loved by the are kept for Jesus Christ. And I think we need to linger right there on that thought. Because this letter is fundamentally about perseverance. Right? We've, we've seen that already. We need to be people as Christians who contend for the faith. We don't give ground to lies and ungodliness. And yet, from the outset even, as this issue is even raised, Jude grounds his exhortations to persevere in the gospel reality that even as you are summoned to persevere, God keeps those whom he has called. He keeps them for Christ. Right? As in that, so what, what does that mean? Why are they kept for Christ? Well, as John's gospel repeatedly affirms, the Father has given the elect to the Son so that no one can snatch them out of his hand. These are the gift from the Father to the Son that he would have a people for himself. And so we are kept. Philippians 1, 6, right? And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. If God begins a work in you by calling you to faith, God finishes a work in you by keeping you for Jesus Christ. And this description of the called as those upon whom God has set his love and keeps for Christ starkly contrasts with the description of the ungodly people who are the primary reason for Jude writing this letter. Now, just like there were two descriptions that came with the called, there are two follow-up descriptions that came with the ungodly. And we see them there in the text very clearly. These ungodly people, one, pervert the grace of our God into salvation, and two, second thing, deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Rather than being loved by God, they run after they run after their love of fleshly desires. Rather than being kept for Christ, they reject and deny Him. And so we see how these descriptions parallel in Jude's book. And so we've seen that there is a contrast between the called and the ungodly. And now we want to think about our second point, the character 
of this contrast, the character of the contrast. So with the contrast in view, there are then two kinds of people in the world, the called and the ungodly. Uh, We have seen how Jude characterized these two kinds of people, but we also need to note something further about this contrast between these two kinds of, of people. Now, this is subtle, but I think this is really, really important. Okay, I think it's easy to overlook this, uh, but I think that this is actually crucial to what's going on in Jude. So, although the descriptions of the called and the ungodly mark a difference in themselves, well, we also see something more substantial, but also less obvious about this rest. So in terms of the called, right, they're also described as beloved and kept. Now, being beloved and being kept, notice this, are things that happen to them. You see that? These are things that happen to someone. God performs these actions of loving and keeping upon the called. On the other hand, I think this is, this shows us the riches, right, of God's word and how, how there's so much here. On the other hand, for the ungodly, perverting God's grace into sensuality and denying Christ are actions that they do. The ungodly are the actors in the deeds that describe them. The difference between active and passive verbs, between doing and receiving, in fact, may be subtle. But doesn't it mean everything? You see the difference between God's people and the ungodly is not fundamentally that God's people are better behaved. That's not the fundamental difference here. Rather, the difference is that God has done something to the called. God has set his love on them, changed them, and is preserving them in faith until Christ's return. Christian identity is not in how good we are, but what in what God has done for and to us. You see that. As a Christian, you receive your identity from outside. Just as the faith has been delivered to us, so your Christian identity is delivered to you from outside. Your identity as a Christian is not in you. It's in what God has done for and to you. God, rather than you, is at the center of how we understand ourselves as believers. Sometimes, Right? People don't want to become Christians because they know, which is true, that it means a change in the way that they live. It is true that Christians are called to live differently from the world. There's no denying that, and there's no reason why we should want to deny that. Indeed, it's part of Jude's point. But even if Christians are described as living differently than the world, we are not defined by being different from the world in what we do. 
Right? We are defined by being loved by God and by how God in that love keeps us in faith and increasing holiness until the day that Christ returns for us. We are defined by that. Whatever, whatever a list of descriptions, Jude says we are defined by what God has done to us. And so, Christian, right? There's something really pointed here for us, isn't there? Do not be the Pharisee of Luke 18, who thanks God that he is supposedly holier than the tax collector. Because that is not what defines us. Rather, indeed, be like the tax collector who beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Don't say, thank you, God, that I'm not like them. You are indeed like them. But cry to God for his mercy. After all, it is the tax collector who went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So Christian, you are God's, not because you are holier, not because you are smarter, not because you are more willing to do the right thing, but you are God's because God has called you in love that he freely set upon you and because every day, God preserves you in the faith. Every day that you wake up believing in Christ still is a day to celebrate the Lord God and His sovereignty. Thank you, God, that the faith you have given me, you have upheld it still. I cannot do this of myself. But you, Lord, are the God who keeps the people whom you have given to your Son. On the other hand, if you're not a believer, then then actually there's something pointed here for you as well. And I hope you see that the, the nature of this contrast between what God does to people and what the ungodly do means that, in fact, you do not have the upper hand on God. Right? It seems to me as though uh, often people put off coming to faith as if it's something that they can decide to do anytime that they might please to do so. And if, if you think that God is simply ready to have you whenever you might decide that you are ready to have Him, then indeed you are mistaken. After all, Jude says that certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Right? Let's put the fine point on it. 
it means that ungodly people are those whom God predestined to hell. In eternity, God considered humanity fallen in Adam and chose some for salvation. And the rest he appointed, designated, for damnation. Jude is very clear that God has chosen some for destruction. I would imagine that a lot of us are uneasy with this. But it's not as if I've gone beyond what the text says, is it? And there is that pointed application for unbelievers here. God is not in heaven wringing his hands waiting for you to come to him. He is not troubled by your skepticism. Far different from my position at this moment, God does not have to plead with you to come to faith. If God wanted you to believe, then you would. And so, if you feel uneasy about your standing before God right now, then do not delay to respond to it. If, if now is that moment when God has pricked your heart, then there is no time to tarry. For it is not for you to decide when you will trust in Christ. If God is pulling at you right now, then indeed right now throw yourself upon his mercy. For God may not pull that heartstring again. The character of the contrast throws full light upon our dependence on divine grace and our need for divine mercy. But we should think finally about the commission in the contrast. The commission in the contrast. So nestled, nestled within this uh, fairly startling <laughs> contrast, uh, in Jude's exhortation, uh, in verse 3, he, he wrote, Beloved, although I was eager, very eager, to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once, deliver, once for all delivered to the saints. So we have... A calling, a commission here, right? Um, an exhortation that we would contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. That is the commission in the contrast. And there are three things, these are brief, uh, three things to consider here. So first, Jude has a common salvation with his, with his readers, with all Christians. Right? There are no degrees. What this means is there are no degrees of being a Christian. Being a Christian is not like being hungry. I can be sort of hungry or I can be really, really hungry. Uh, 
Being a Christian isn't like that. It's more like being pregnant. You either are or you aren't. And there's not a spectrum. And so these ungodly people who have abused grace to endorse immorality can't appeal to categories that we have heard in the modern period like carnal Christians, believers who who just can't overcome their flesh, who, who don't have a good handle on their sin or something like that. Or, nor can they appeal to something like a second blessing that makes Christians achieve the, the next level of holiness or, or walking in faith. No, salvation, right, is common to all believers. It is something that we share. We are joined to Christ by faith, Jew, Gentile, every status in the world, united to Christ, justified, sanctified, and wait for glorification. Baptized with the Spirit, all in common. Second, right? So there's a common salvation. Second, there is an objective thing called the faith. And it has been delivered to us. So, so there is a body of doctrine, a set content of theology. The, the fact that it is delivered to us is so important. Because it means that we cannot invent it. The faith, right? We, creativity is the prized trait of the modern era, isn't it? But when it comes to the doctrine of the church, creativity is our demise. Right? I'm, I'm not saying there's not room for creativity in the church. That's not my point. And when it comes to the doctrine of the faith, we don't get creative. We don't invent it. We cannot invent it. Our beliefs have to be received from outside ourselves. Right? They must be delivered. Namely, delivered to us in God's Word. And the church summarizes the Bible's teaching and our confessions so that we can continually receive that which we have learned. As as people over the centuries have reflected on Scripture, they've digested it and left it to us to confess together about our common salvation. So, if you have based your faith on what you know in your heart or what you feel has to be true about God, then indeed it could very easily be something other than biblical faith. Jude addresses that issue directly uh, in a few verses, as we'll consider uh, in weeks ahead. But, right, the point that we have to see is that we don't invent what we think about God. Just as we don't want someone, our friends or family, to invent what they think about us apart from hearing from us about who we are. Indeed, we don't invent what we think about God. We go to the Scripture. We read in light of what Christians of the past have understood Scripture to say. And we preach the tried and true gospel because the faith has been delivered and the faith does not change.
Lastly, because there is the faith, Christians are called to contend for it. The reason is, distorted doctrine produces distorted morality. There is a link between these things. We cannot dispose of what we know of God and still live as faithful Christians. It's not possible, right? Because I mean, we, we have seen, even in recent years, some very well-known pop culture preachers uh, come unsurprisingly in some ways to, to new thoughts about God when they fall into godless lifestyles. I've learned so much more about God now that I live in adultery. Oh, you've invented who you want God to be. And what you feel is excusing your own sin by inventing a new God in your image. So, we teach the truth and exhort in ethics hand in hand because they are linked. Jude went directly for the doctrine of predestination within the first four verses because theology matters. And it means to bring, right, it is a means to bring about a sincere faith that is shown in love. And the most fundamental truth for which we contend is the gospel. Christ died, right? For whom, as Romans tells us? For the ungodly. Because that is who all of us once were. Christ died for the ungodly so that we could know the forgiveness of sins. We were all once the enemies of God. Christ died for us, but by faith has raised us to new life, called us indeed so that we are no longer what we once were. Although, indeed, we must be diligent to contend for the faith, still, the call for the Christian is not to worry about your eternity. God has called us because he has loved us specifically and so he will keep us for christ until the last day for all who are in christ for all who are in christ there is great hope before us that god has set his love upon you believer and is intimately involved in your life to keep you. God couldn't do that if he were distant. God keeps you as he walks with you. And he assures you of that because he has given you his son. Let's pray. Father God, it is the thing that makes us tremble to think that your churches can be so easily undermined in what we believe and even, in fact, in what we do. Um, We pray for your help, that you will protect this church always, and specifically the individual members here, 
Right? This is, there is a corporate dimension to this that we want our church to be faithful to the truth. And yet we pray that those here who have made professions of faith are those whom you have called and right now that they would know your keeping power grounded in your eternal love for them. And for those who are listening either in this room or further afield, later on the video, whatever it might be, we pray that this is a moment that you would be moving in them so that they would see that even as the ungodly stand condemned before God, Christ at the right time died for the ungodly, that he might bring us to God that we might be reconciled to our maker by faith in the Lord Jesus. We pray that you would do that work, that you would effectually call, even at this moment, people to faith in your Son, that they might know salvation, have the common salvation, and so that they would spend eternity praising your name, that there would be more voices in heaven In the new creation, singing out your praises, you are able, Lord God, we pray you would do it. We pray your help that we would be clear, that we would be committed to receiving what we believe. That even when we are mistaken, we would continually go back to the scripture to learn what you have delivered to us, that we might believe about you so that we would love and cherish the true God. And what you have truly done. So we pray your help in that as well. And we pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen.